chapter 3. We'll get right into our study tonight. In this third chapter where this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, we've had the opportunity to look into the deeper meaning of Paul's life. This beginning of this chapter is an expression how that Paul had to abandon all of his confidence in the flesh, how he had to count all of his personal efforts as refuse, and then to begin living the fullness of the Christian life. When Paul understood that, he was able to pursue a higher, deeper meaning of life and to live for only one purpose, and that is for the glory of God. And that meant forsaking any future personal gains to do a work that embodies the highest, noblest calling that anyone could have. Glorifying God, that's what Paul wanted to do. And then his life's work was to win other people to Jesus Christ, to bring them to salvation, and then teach them how in their lives that they could also give glory to God. And living for the Lord in Paul's way was radical. It was fanatical because it would bring suffering and possibly even death. And even if death didn't come, there had to be that willingness that A person would die for Christ if that's what God called on him to do. Well, to bring the Philippians to that same level of commitment was not an easy thing because they wouldn't all see it the same way that Paul saw it. And as we talked last week, we were discussing the will of God and learning the will of God. Paul wasn't a new Christian, and and so the kind of dedication that he gave to serving the Lord took a lot of time, it took a lot of effort, there was a lot of trust involved, and the Philippians were not yet at that point. Uh, Learning Christ for them was a progressive effort, just like it is for us. And so you would never expect that a newborn Christian would be strong in the faith from the very beginning. Although we trust Christ implicitly for our initial salvation, yet the outworking of that salvation, the application of God, wants what God wants us to do, learning the will of God, that is a sanctifying learning process. So last week, as we were looking at God's self-revelation, the revelation of his will, we learned that we can discern God's will in different ways that he's chosen to reveal himself. Verse 15 of this third chapter speaks of Christian maturity and that further revelation that God gives. And as he does, there's this maturation process that goes on throughout our lives. And so if you remember, as we discussed last week, the very best way that we can discern God's will is through God's Word, through the Scriptures. God will give us examples that we can follow. There are people that we can look to and we can emulate their example and thereby we can walk in God's will. God gives us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit teaches us how to follow Christ. But in reality, the main way that God teaches us to know his will, we learn his will, is through the abiding, infallible, inspired word of God. And that's what the Holy Spirit uses to guide us. Uh, It's the working through God's word that enables us to understand what God's will is. And it will take us to the place that God desires for us to be. Now tonight, I want to uh, spend some time considering God's word and really what this is, the next three sermons are kind of an expansion of the last point of last week's sermon. The best way to determine God's will is by reading the Scriptures. David said that the Word is a lamp for our feet, it's a light for our path, and in short, the Word of God is the way that we walk with God. So the Bible, then, is our rule of faith and practice. And tonight, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider this subject, the rule of faith and practice. 
So let's stand and read God's word. We'll just look at, read two verses here tonight. We'll start at verse number 15 in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. That word perfect, remember, means mature. Let us therefore as many as be mature be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for those who have come out tonight. Help us as we look into your word to understand better, Lord, how we are to walk in your word. It's our rule of faith and practice. Bless in this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. That 16th verse, he says, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. And when Paul wrote that scripture, the whole of the New Testament was not yet complete. Romans had been written. Um, First and Second Corinthians had been written. Galatians had been penned, and there were some of the other letters. But the whole canon of Scripture was not yet complete when Paul is writing this letter. And in this Scripture, uh, Paul encourages these Philippians to continue in the revelation that had been given thus far. He says, don't deviate from these things that you've already learned. Continue in those. When he was writing to the Thessalonians, he encouraged them. He said, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. And so the revelation that they had received up to that point was to be their guide. As more scripture was written, there would be more revelation of the word of God. More would come to their understanding. But they were to follow what they had already learned. Now, of course, today we have all of the scriptures. We have more availability to the scriptures than in any other generation of any other time. And so today we have this one completed book that is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. Now, if this is the way then that God reveals his will, then there is no possession that is as valuable. There's no knowledge as great as we can learn as what we find in the scriptures. The scriptures are are what we're going to talk about because that's the rule of faith and practice. Now, this evening, I'm going to begin a message about five different aspects of the Word. I'm not going to finish this tonight. In fact, we're just going to get part number one of it done. Then we're going to continue with the rest of the next two messages. But under each of these aspects, uh, there are subheadings and there are certain words, there are certain terms that we need to consider. Now, the first aspect, which is the subject of the message tonight, is the inspiration of the Word. The singular outstanding characteristic of the Bible that makes it unique from any other book is the way that it is inspired. It's its inspiration. Now, just about any author that writes any kind of a book may talk about inspiration. They've been inspired, they say, to write things. A novelist may use that word. He says, I was inspired to write this book. Or a poet may say, I have inspiration to write this book. And even children's authors, uh, children's books, they may say the same thing. I've been inspired to write this particular thing. But none of those is speaking of inspiration in the same way that the Bible speaks of inspiration. This is the very thing that makes the Bible so unique. The way that we receive it, the way it came to us, it came by the inspiration of God. Now, I want you to write down this first word that we need to know, and it's the word breath. The word inspired is the same form of a word from which we get breath. And in the scriptures, the word spirit is also translated from that same word. 
In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That phrase, inspiration of God, is one word in the Greek, which is theonoustos. And it translates simply as God breathed. It's the Holy Spirit of God that breathed upon men and caused them to write down the words of God. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So that's the unique aspect of the word. It's not, it's not the product of the musings of men. It's not inspired in the same way that a novelist would write a book. It's not inspired even in the same way that a Bible commentator may think that he's inspired. What this is, is God literally breathing out the words and then giving those words to men to write them down, using human instrumentality to write the very words of God. Now, the Bible's unique in that way because it is literally God's mind. The Bible is God's will. This is God's direction for us that's been put down on paper. Now, if that's true, then there has to be something that's, that's unique in the way that it's given that certainly demands our attention. Now, if this is what men thought that God said, if this is some man's interpretation of what they think either God said or what God should have said then would we regard the Bible for just what it is? It would be just man's thoughts, man's ideas, man's interpretations. It's just somebody's opinion. But this is not opinion. This is the rule. This is the book that's God's Word. And all of it cover to cover is God's Word. And Scripture itself declares that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. It says that it's the book that completely and thoroughly equips us for every good work. And, of course, every good work would be the work of God. So if this is the thing that we're to live by, this is God's will for us, God's word, then we can't ignore this. We can't ignore it in our homes. Certainly we can't ignore it in our churches. This is the thing that has to be the singular focus of what we do. The Bible has to be lifted up. It must be followed. It must be loved because this is what tells us how to live, how we can be successful, how we can be righteous, and most importantly, folks, how we can be reconciled to God. So Paul's intent here is to impress upon the Philippians that what God says rules. What God says rules. What God says in his holy word is the very thing that makes you wise unto salvation. And so Paul said, we don't speak in the wisdom of man's words. We speak in the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of God. And so the only way that we can find it is by reading the very words that God spoke. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, Paul commended the Thessalonians. Why did he commend them? Well, it was for the way in which they received the words of God. He said, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. When Paul began to speak to the Bereans, they did exactly what they should have done. They took the amount of light that they had been given, they had the Old Testament Scriptures, and they took those Old Testament Scriptures and they applied it to the New Testament teachings of Paul to check him out to see if he was right. And so in Acts 17, verse 11, it says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. 
Now, thank the Lord that the people in Thessalonica who who previously didn't want to hear the word of God learned better because when the Spirit got hold of them, then they began to receive Paul's teachings as they were, in fact, the words of God. Now, in Berean Baptist Church, here is what we want to do. We want to lift up the word of God. We will read God's word. We'll preach God's word because that is exactly what we're called to do. We must know the word. In order for the word to be our rule of faith and practice, we have to know it. We, we can't follow what we haven't read. We can't do what we haven't been taught to do. And so that's what we'll do. We will lift up God's word and preach from this book because this is the very thing that we need. And a church that will not read the word of God, a church that will not preach the word of God is not really even a church at all. Because that's what we do. That's what the church is. This is the station for the preaching and the teaching of what? God's word. We're to fellowship around God's Word. This is a place of fellowship in which we find out how to worship God properly by reading God's Word. It's the rule of faith and practice. And we're not going to know it any other way. Uh, Jesus told his disciples to teach his people to observe everything that he had commanded. And the place we find that is in God's Word. Now let me also add to that that the Word of God is our exclusive rule or exclusive source for faith and practice. There is no other word that we can accept. There is no other word anywhere that holds the weight that the Holy Scriptures hold because of this thing we're just talking about, the inspiration of it. Nothing is like it. And there's prohibition in the Scriptures from adding anything to it or taking anything away from the written word. So when the canon of Scripture was complete, it was sealed up, it is authoritative, And the Bible gives no option for additions or subtractions. And so that means that the Mormons cannot claim that the Book of Mormon is the inspired Word of God. It means that a Jehovah Witness cannot take the watchtower and say we can hold the watchtower up and put it on par with the things that God has said in his book. It means that the Roman Catholic cannot go to his, de- to his decrees of the councils and the practice of traditions and call those to be equal additions to Scripture that are valuable and as authoritative as the canon of Scripture itself. They cannot do that. And let me just say this. You may not even understand what I'm saying when I talk about the canon of Scripture. That word canon just simply means rule. It means the accepted rule. It means the standard. And so the canon of Scripture is the accepted rule or the standard. You can't add to it. So that means that man-made rules are not the standard. It doesn't matter if it comes from a Roman Catholic, a, a Mormon, or from a fundamental Baptist or anybody else. The rule of faith and practice is the Bible. It's the Bible alone. Now, you may get some people to agree with this, and they say, well, yes, uh, the Bible is the Word of God. We believe that. The Bible was God-breathed, and they agree with the whole thing about inspiration, and they say the original authors of the Bible had the Word of God, but today we can't be sure that we have God's Word. We don't have God's Word any longer, they say, because we don't have the original autographs. And, of course, that's true. I mean, there's not one single scroll. There's not a papyrus anywhere. There's not a legal pad. There's not a computer file anywhere that has the original uh, words of Scripture that have been written down. We don't have that any longer. And so they say, well, we can't know the Bible that we're reading today is actually the Word of God. Well, I want you to write down another word, and this word is preservation. 
It's necessary for God to preserve his word. We have accurate copies of God's word because God's word has been preserved. Now, if God can inspire the word, then certainly God can preserve the word. God can put all the means in place that's necessary to keep this word safe from human error. And the copies that we possess today have been preserved by God. But I want you to notice something, and you probably know this already, that we have many copies of God's Word, and many of the copies are not in agreement to what God actually wrote. And so then there has risen this viewpoint that the Bible contains a mixture of man's words and God's words. In other words, this this Bible that we hold in our hands, even though we call this God's Word, we say this is God's Word, it actually has some parts that have been added by men. Maybe even well-meaning men, but some of it has been added by men. And that couldn't be more evident than when I began to read from the King James Version and somebody else is using a different version. Now, the new translations use the same verse numbering as the King James because all of them go by the accepted standard that uh, was in the 16th century when they divided verses or the chapters up into verses. Uh, And be aware of that, the verses... Numbering, the verse numbering is not original, it's not inspired. Somebody did that, they broke it up into verses. But all of the Bible versions follow the same verse numbering system. And so when it comes to a place where the King James and New Translations differ, the verse is either left blank or it's omitted. For instance, let me just give you one example of this. Turn your Bible over to John chapter 5, if you would, and here is the story of the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And and we'll start reading here in John chapter 5, verse number 1. John 5, verse number 1. It says, And after this there was a feast of the Jews, and the Jews went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Now the modern translations leave out the end of verse number three and all of verse number four. For instance, the NIV New International Version reads this way. It starts, verse number 3, As here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And then in the NIV, that's the end of verse number 3. Then you have a verse number 4 that's written there in the text, but there is no verse there at all. It's left blank. And it starts again with verse number 5. And it says, "Who One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, one of my study Bibles, there's a note for verse number 4 that reads this way. It says, part of verse number 3 and verse 4 are not found in some manuscripts. Indeed, no extant Greek manuscript dated before A.D. 400 has them. Possibly, on the basis of popular tradition, an early scribe included the contested words in an effort to explain the bubbly, intermittent flow of the water. Now, that's an interesting comment because all of the old commentators were aware 
before the new versions came out, that there were some copies of the Greek manuscripts that did omit the end of verse 3 and all of verse number 4. But their conclusion was that the King James translators had this right. And so in their commentaries, they would also include commentary on verse number 4. But let's suppose for just a minute that verse number 4 was indeed added by a scribe or that some other part was added, and this is just one of the verses that we could pull out. Well, if that's true, then what do we have? Well, we would have then a mixture of man's words and God's words. So what do you do about a problem like that? Well, you've only got one recourse. You have to let the Bible scholars uh, uh, sort all of that out and let them decide for us which parts God said and which are the parts that man added. So what does that do? Well, it makes the Bible scholars God. They're, they're the ones that have the authority to tell us which parts are true and which parts are not true. And that is exactly what's happened over the past 100 years. It's come down to this, that the Bible has actually become man's commentary on what God should have said or what they think that God said. Now, do you see the danger that we have here? The King James Version is translated in a different way from these new modern Bible versions. King James Version uses what we call verbal equivalency, which is a word-for-word translation. And so the only additions that you have to the text are accommodations where a Greek and English where there's not a word that's represented in the English for the Greek words. And so an English word may be added in order to clarify the meaning of the Greek text. And of course, that's why you have those italicized words that are in the King James Version. Now the NIV, NIV especially, and many of the others use dynamic equivalency in translation, which means that they have added to the word... They have subtracted from the word, and simply they have changed the word. And so the result is then that in the NIV, there are 6,600 changes from the Greek manuscripts, which really, in effect, makes the NIV nothing but a long-running commentary on what translators think the Bible should say. Now, some of you think that you can escape that problem, and you could make things a little bit simpler for yourself, by going to the New King James. Well, the New King James has over 2,000 changes from the majority text, and so it's up for you to, up to you to decide which did God say and which did man say. And so what that does, it puts the translators on equal authority with God. Now, what the King James translators did was to take the majority of the Greek text all these that are in vast agreement with one another, and they translated those texts word for word from the Greek, and they gave us this English translation of the New Testament. They made no commentary on it. There's no commentary. All that they did, they make no changes. They just translated it just as it is. But some of you think, well, the King James Version, that's too hard for us to understand. So couldn't we make a new translation and update the English? Of course we could do that. I think it would be a good thing for us to do. We just updated the the old King James English. In many cases, that would be good. But folks, that hasn't happened. Nobody has done that. So what are you going to do? How are you going to understand the Bible? What what are we going to do about understanding? Because the King James language is somewhat archaic for us. How are we going to understand it? Are the translators supposed to be the ones to help us to understand the Bible? Is that the job of a translator It's his purpose to help you understand what the Bible says. No. 
Whose job is it to help you understand what the Bible says? Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is out there. Who's in here? The Holy Spirit is. But who helps you understand the Bible? That's the purpose of preaching. That's what you come here to hear the Word of God for because the preacher comes to help you to understand what God says. And so my job as a pastor is to help you to understand what these words mean. Well, what is God trying to say to us? There are many commentaries that are written that are very good for this as well. And there are many commentaries that, in fact, were written by pastors. They're written by preachers. They come from the preaching of the Word of God, the explanations of the text. And so what you need to do is you need sometimes to get a hold of a a good commentary. And if you don't know which ones are good, come talk to me because I read a lot of commentaries. You, You find something that you can trust. But basically, it's the job of preaching and the job of the pastor teacher of your church to understand or help you to understand and to explain the Bible. And so when we come to difficult readings, what I do is explain the Bible. I give you the sense of the text. And then it's your job, after you've heard the preaching of the Word of God, you've seen the explanation, then it's your job to check me out to see if that's true. And that's exactly what the Bereans did with Paul. They searched the Scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. And if they did it with him, you can be sure you need to do it with me. So the pastor, the preacher, the the teacher of the Word of God gets you started in this gets you started in your understanding, and the Holy Spirit helps you to develop that as you depend upon Him as you read God's Word. And folks, when you do it that way, you do it the proper way, things start to come together. And you don't know how many times I've talked to people that say, after the preaching of the Word, they say, well, I never saw that before. A light goes off. Now we understand it a little bit better. And that's what the job of the pastor is to do. Now let me tell you what confidence I have in what we teach and preach at Berean. Now, as all of you know, or should know, the foundation for my teaching is what I find in the Bible concerning God's covenant of salvation. The covenant was made between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world. Now, the covenant, then, is that starting place for what we call the doctrines of grace. And so I preach the doctrines of grace. And I have enough confidence in those foundational premises of the doctrines of grace that I can challenge you to take the Bible, read it from cover to cover, with this in mind. Look for God's direction over men's affairs. Look for the sovereign choices of God in men's affairs. And I promise you that if you read it that way, you won't just find a few indicators. They will leap out on the page at you. Because it's written through and through. And then by the time that you get to the end of the New Testament, I promise you, you'll come to the same conclusions that I come to. Now that's off the point. I'm sorry for that. But I want to tell you that that is the function of preaching. It's to proclaim the gospel and explain the word. So this is why that I preach from the Bible and I don't preach from anything else. It's not the job of translators to explain the word. It's the job of the preacher. Now, their job is to faithfully translate the text no matter where it takes them. I mean, even if it doesn't agree with their preconceived notions and dispositions, that doesn't matter. Just take it where the text takes it. Faithfully translate the word because it's God's word and God is the authority. Now, let's go back for just a minute to this word preservation. It's also important for us to understand that what God is doing right now is that God is preserving the Word. God did no more inspiration after the original authors 
when God breathed into them the words that he wanted them to write. But today, you have some who make ridiculous claims that the King James Version is an inspired translation. In other words, what they're saying is that they believe that God did the same thing with the translators as he did with the original authors. And so, uh, that means that there are people who actually believe that the English version of the Bible, the English translators, translated things that they can actually correct Greek manuscripts. God inspired the translators, and so the English corrects the Greek. And so that's how they get around certain words of the Scripture that we know could have been translated more accurately. I know I notice that I say words. I'm not talking about doctrines here. Uh, For instance, uh, I can read the New Testament, and I come to the book of Revelation, and we go to Revelation chapter 2, and there Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamos. And Jesus says this in that verse, I know thy works... And where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. You might remember that when we studied that verse, I said the word seat is the Greek word thronos. And then I said, which could be better translated uh, by the word throne. Because it's the same English word from which we get, or the same word from which we get our English word throne. So you could better translate the verse, even where Satan's throne is. And what that is, is a perfectly legitimate and correct way of reading the scriptures. But for those who believe in King James' inspiration, well, they'd say, you can't change that word. can't change the word seats because that word is God's word. God inspired that word. It's not man's word. It's God's word. So you can't change the word. So they make the English word the thing that God said and not the Greek word. And yet, the inconsistency shows up in that position when they begin to preach. What do they do? They start changing words to explain what it says. Now, translation inspiration does not make sense, and neither does the Bible uphold any such idea. The King James translators never claimed that they were doing anything other than translating. They never said that they were inspired by God. Now, having said all of that, do we have a reliable copy of God's Word in our hands? Can we state with certainty that this is the Word of God and that this This right here that we have, this can be confidently relied upon as God's word to man. And, of course, our rule of faith and practice. It's the answer to that question. Well, the answer is yes, we can rely upon it. Thomas Paul Simmons wrote in his book, The Systematic Study of Bible Doctrine. He says, by means of comparison of the many ancient copies of the original of the Scripture... Textual criticism has progressed to such a point that no doubt exists as to any important doctrine of the Bible. While God did not preserve the original manuscripts for us, and he must have had good reasons for not doing so, he has given us such an abundance of ancient copies that we can, with remarkable exactness, arrive at the reading of the originals. And the study of Hebrew and Greek has progressed to such a point, and this knowledge has been made available to even the common people in such a way that all can be assured as to the meaning of the original language in nearly all cases. Now, that last paragraph says that you don't have to be a Greek scholar to know that we have a translation that is faithful to the original. And so you can pick up the Bible, and you can confidently say, this is the Word of God. Now, I believe that the King James Version is is the very best that we can use today. But that's not to say that there's no value in other translations. 
I'll not preach from anything other than the King James Bible because I think it's the best. So why not preach from the best? But I don't believe that there, the other translations will, will throw you off on any major Bible doctrine. Uh, sometimes I don't think they emphasize the doctrines as much as they should. But they're not going to send you off looking for another way of salvation. That, that's not going to happen with the NIV or NASB or, or the ESV or any of those others. They're not going to send you off looking for salvation in a different place. But what they will do for any thinking person, and perhaps they do this unintentionally, I don't know, but they cast doubt on whether the King James Version is all God's words or is it part man's words. When they start to leave things out of their versions, that's the first thing that comes to your mind. Should it have been left out? Was it God's word or not God's word? Why isn't it there? And so they are the ones who've made that decision. Now, when you allow that a discovery of another manuscript could correct the majority of the Greek text, then there's the possibility that there is another discovery out there just waiting to be made, and what it will do is it will alter what we now claim to be the Word of God. And if you think about it, that could be an endless thing. I mean, there could be multiple manuscripts out there that they say that, well, that's really the Word of God. And so if that's true, then we can't have confidence in anything that we teach that this is actually the accurate translation of the text and that we're giving you the sense of what God said. If that's true, we can't do it. And if it's true, that means you can throw the word preservation right out the window because preservation means nothing at all. And so you'd have to say, God did not preserve his word. Now, either he did or he didn't. And so the King James translators took the preponderance of the Greek manuscripts and these ones that agreed together from the same families of manuscripts and they put those together and they came up with an English translation that is true and faithful, I believe, to what God said. So... I would tell you I have every bit of confidence that when we use this Bible that we're preaching to you what God said. And I think every word of it is what God said. Now that's the first part of the message. And we've got four more parts to go to this. What the word of God really means to us is our rule of faith and practice. But I'll stop there. It's almost 8 o'clock and we'll come back next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Uh, your word. We thank you, Lord, for a preserved word that we can have full confidence that what we read here is indeed the words that you spoke and the words that you'd have us to live by. Lord, help us to understand this, to recognize it, and to see how important that the word is. We cannot do without it. We cannot ignore it. We must read it. We must ask for understanding of it because here is where we find your will. Bless our people here tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's